bringing the stories of people just like us directly into your home and learning more about them. This is Trent Speaks. I never really know how to start. I don't, I want to switch it up every week instead of saying, hello, welcome in, or, and yet another week on the Trent Speaks podcast. I haven't really found a way to make a good switch up on the introduction, but that's okay. What can you do, really? A couple things I want to talk to you about before we get into this week's guest. One of those things is Patreon. Patreon is something I talked about last week. It's a way you can show your support for the work that I'm doing and the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash Speaks. To find out more information, look at the tiers, look at the different benefits you can receive from those tiers, the different Patreon levels, patronship levels, if that's what you want to call them. You can get access to behind-the-scenes content as well as bonus content, and that may or may not include the classic Cooking with Trent that everyone so much loves. Don't hesitate to go check that out. Feel free to show your support. Feel free to show love for me. If you have any questions about that, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Comment on any of my social media. Send me a message at Trent Speaks on Instagram, Trent Speaks on Facebook, or you can email me, TrentSpeaks at gmail.com. One big thing with Patreon that you may be thinking, well, what, what is it exactly that I'm receiving? Again, go on, check it out, patreon.com slash Trent Speaks. I can tell you one of the biggest things that you'll be receiving is video. So again, whether that's behind the scenes content, bonus content, or maybe it's even going to be videos of the podcast. I don't know. You don't know. Let's all find out and work on this together. Again, this is the free week, as I like to call it. We are still in the midst of that. Everything will be public on Patreon until this Friday. Friday, February 1st is when I will exclusively put it to those that are in the tiers. We'll be able to see everything. So if you're interested before contributing monthly, feel free to go on this week, check it out, and see if that is something you'd be interested in. Again, I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you may have regarding Patreon. A couple of exciting things have happened in the speaking world since we've last talked. Well, I can't really say since we've last talked, because since I've last talked to you, essentially, I got to give an impromptu keynote last minute, unexpected. It was kind of, hey, Trent, will you do this? So I jotted down three topics I wanted to cover, and I covered them, and it was so much fun. Absolutely loved it. I don't remember if I talked about that last week or not. If I did, there it is. You're hearing it again. One really exciting thing, though, from this past weekend is I received an email from someone who basically said, Hey, I heard you talk at our fall training. I was really impressed by what you had to say. And I would highly recommend that you apply for this TEDx event. So that was super exciting to receive that, to be reached out to specifically to say, hey, you were really impactful, loved your message. Why don't you apply to this TEDx event? So I got to do that. 
I'm really excited for it. And you never know. We'll see what happens. I applied for a TEDx event earlier this year. Did not get an interview to even see if I could could move forward in the process. Was Did not receive an interview. But you win some, you lose some. And you never know until you try. So you just got to keep trying, putting yourself out there, pushing. And sometimes that may be it for you. Depending on what it is that you want your focus to be or what you want to do. If you fail, so what? We talked with Matt a couple weeks ago about how failure is okay. And failure is really what is going to make us stronger the more that we go through it, the more that we learn from it, and the more that we can tailor what we did wrong previously to make it better for the future. I'm really excited to share the interview that I had with this week's guest. She was phenomenal. She was amazing. She had a very personal story and well felt 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 hearted. I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But a very good message and a lasting impact. Hello. Hi, is this Tracy? Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It was a pleasure to speak with author and speaker Tracy Maxfield. Here's that conversation. Tracy, I know looking at your website and everything and looking at your biography that uh, you were a nurse for 35 years. How did you get into nursing? And I guess, how have you transitioned into kind of the place that you're in your life right now? Okay. So um, I was born in Wales in the United Kingdom. And from the age of two, I always wanted to be a nurse. Um, I used to bandage my teddies. I used to practice putting slings on them. And it was just something that uh, I felt was very natural to me. Um, I've always kind of been a care tender, caregiver per se. And even though my family were vehemently opposed to it because they thought it was lowly work because long hours, um, low pay in Britain at that time, that was true. Okay. Not necessarily, no. But they wanted me to do something else, but it was just the passion. I always wanted to. My uncle um, had been a psychiatric nurse. He gave me his book on anatomy and physiology. And I remember at 13, 14, I had a notebook and I was copying down the different bones and the blood vessels and I was learning how to set up scrub trays and things. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. And <laughs> so um, I left school uh, again. Um, my my family pushing me to go to university. I was accepted, and I was actually going to go to study American studies. And I sneakily put in some applications <laughs> to, to nursing schools, and I was accepted by quite a few of them. I went for an interview, and they, they said I could start in three months. And the difference in, in Britain is it's hands-on, so... 
you get classroom education, um, usually, it, so it was three months beforehand, and then it's one week, then you actually go on the unit and you become part of the team. And there's very specific things that you have to accomplish each 10 weeks secondment. Then there's an exam in school, and that's how uh, they do nursing there, which is much, much more hands-on than maybe the American or Canadian way. But uh, when I got in, um, my parents were still like, no, um, we don't think so. And so I said, okay, fine, I, um, I'll take some time and I'll do some volunteer work. And so um, I took a year and I spent the entire year volunteering um, children with physical and mental disabilities, children that were blind and deaf, teenagers that had been taken from their home into foster care because um, of sex abuse. Uh, I worked in the very, very first um, adult day centre in Wales for senile dementia. And back in, like, 1982, they never even referred to it as Alzheimer's. It was called senility. And they they were aware that there was starting to be an increase, and they thought, well, let's see if we open this centre and families can take their loved ones with senile dementia there, um, let's see if it helps them have a break and how this works. And so that's how far advanced Britain was, actually, compared, like, that was, what, now, 35, over 35, 36 years ago, they were already conceiving of adult day programs and day centers, and that's only become a reality over here in the States and Canada, maybe in the past 15 years. So, yeah, I kind of proved that I could handle children, older people, dementia, mental, physical, sensory deficits, and so I went nursing. them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have a lot of experience. What is the greatest advancement that you've seen where you think it's been the most benefit? Because there's been a lot of technology and stuff that's come out and everything, too, that has really changed the way the profession has been viewed and worked with, I'm sure. Oh, gosh, so many changes. I'd say some definitely for the better, um, some not so good, because having grown up with that hands-on bedside approach, with more focus on person-centered care and less on the more mundane paperwork and office tasks, I find that that is um, that is one of the detrimental changes. We're pulling the nurses and LPNs and care aides away from the bedside to tasks which they really shouldn't be doing. I, I, I agree, you must document, but it seems to be there's a lot of duplication and triplication of things. Um, I think the biggest advances I've seen is in well, everywhere, but I would say specifically palliative care. Um, I, I uh, very much um, enjoyed the palliative care component as soon as I started nursing. And when I think how far we've come to not only how we can assess and diagnose, but also how we can make people comfortable in the end stages and give them um, a quality of life until they take their last breath. Um, we didn't have that ability all those years ago. Pain control was a huge issue. And I think that uh, palliative care um, has become extremely, 
extremely strong and is itself now um, a speciality. But I think that's what I'm. That's what I notice the most. I mean, obviously, technique, surgery, wound care. Every, I mean, there's like no comparison. When I was nursing, I mean, when I was nursing, we actually used to use leeches. Oh wow! Yeah, we, we used to yeah we used to have leeches, and then we used to put um, on some of the open ulcers. We used to put sugar and put a hairdryer on it to crystallize and scab, and the wounds would heal. But nowadays, I mean, you can put on special occlusive dressings and the wound, or even the fat dressings now where you heal inside out. And its technology has been quite, quite amazing. So, yeah, there's not one thing. Uh, there's so many things. But I would say pain, pain management, especially for those with cancer and palliative in adults and children, has truly um, taken on a life of its own much, much better. Well, and Tracy, you mentioned at the top two that you were born in Wales. And looking at your website, I saw that you had moved to Canada. How old were you when you moved to Canada and why why the move over this way? So, two, I wanted to be a nurse. At five, I wanted to come to the States. Um, unfortunately, uh, my my parents were extremely abusive. It was a very, very challenging childhood. And um, the only thing that kept me going was two things. Be a nurse, move to the States. And those were goals I set very, very early in life. And they motivated me every single year. Keep going, keep going, keep going. When I left home at 19 to go and do my nurse training, and then I qualified I did pediatrics for a while, and then I was actually going to um, up to the Papworth Hospital because they were the first to start the heart transplants. And I thought, no, I think now's the time I want to go to the States. A little bit more problematic to get in, but I was advised because Britain is part of the Commonwealth and Canada is a Commonwealth country, it would be easier. And because I was already a nurse, in all likelihood, um, all I would need to do was take the Canadian equivalency exams. And so I looked into that, and they gave me a choice. I could stay for another year in the United Kingdom and sit my exams, or I could actually come to Canada, work under um, a landed immigrant permit, as and work as a nanny or a housekeeper, but sit my exams in Canada. And so I thought, hey, let's go to Canada. <laughs> and it was it was really to see, okay, will I like it? Is this something uh, that I want to do? And I arrived in Calgary 31 and a half years ago, and I never looked back. Wow. Um, yeah. Never looked back. And yes, um, with regards to my family, oh gosh, I've had no contact with them for, oh, I'm thinking probably maybe 26, 27 years. Um, and that was finally a decision um, that in order for my own health and well-being that I just needed to cut ties because the, even as an adult overseas, the abuse never stopped. So I had to decide that it was time to put myself first. So, yes. Well, and talking about your health too, I know that mental health has been 
a, a battle that you've had for a large part of your life as well, because you were uh, diagnosed with, was it chronic depression? Is that correct? Yeah, genetic depression. And so I guess, talk to me what, what that has been like living with that. And what is it that you've done to, to cope and to kind of be okay with where you're at? So, um, when I think back to when I was a child, I probably was, had some signs of depression, but when you're going through abuse at home, it's kind of not something that you pay attention to (laughs) because you you, you kind of try to stay on your toes and, you know, and hide and be perfect and all that. Um, my first actually major depression was, um, I think it was 1993, and that was the catalyst that um, made me decide to break away forever from my family. Um, I received, so I hadn't spoken to my father, who was the worst abuser, for a year because of things that had happened at my wedding and when we had returned home. And I received a, a phone call at 3 a.m. in the morning from my mother, uh, basically telling me that he was going to commit suicide and I needed to talk to him and talk him down. And it was the most challenging hour of my life because I so wanted to scream, just do it. After all the horrendous abuse he put me and my brother through, and my mother, but I took the brunt of it because I would defend them. Um, And now I'm having to talk this person down. Um, And that was it. Uh, The next day, I phoned to check how he was doing and had they gone to the doctor because I advised doctor's follow-up, medication, and I was told in no uncertain terms to mind my business, why was I bothering them, etc., etc. And I found out after a conversation with my brother that the suicide call was fake and it had been a means for him to try and talk to me. And that was it. It was like uh, I likened that episode to my fingers, I was holding on to a ledge, a window ledge, and my fingers were loosening one by one. And I knew something wasn't right, and as a nurse, you look things up. And so I went to see um, my doctor and started on antidepressants. And after about three months, um, I actually was feeling much better. I stayed on them for a year and started therapy, and that's where I got the closure with my family. And then about 12, 13 years later, um, an incident at work, there were some family issues and just, again, a number of triggers. And I had another episode, um, different antidepressants. This time I went to see a psychiatrist who looked at my family history and determined because there had been lots of depression on my father's side that it highly likely... I was experiencing a genetic depression and suggested that once I get out of this, that crisis per se, it would be a good idea to keep me on a low dose of antidepressants for the rest of my life because chances are I will probably have another episode in time. And certainly we are. Once you have a chronic or a genetic depression, you are predisposed. Um, and so, which brings me up to August 2015 when I fell down the rabbit hole. So it was um, four and a half years um, in a, a new position, 
still with the same organization, but it was a new position at a hospital, extremely stressful. At the same time, separated and divorced from my then husband, had to leave my dog, moved to a new home, lost a lot of friends because as is customary in divorces, everyone decides to take sides. Um, and kind of was starting my life over, but still working this extremely high-pressure job and was going through just intimidation and threats and harassment and bullying, and it just kept going and going. Escalated in the December of 2014, um, and from that point on, it was, yeah, it was just so horrible until um, I had a meeting um, in August 2015 where it just horrible things were said, lies, accusations, false allegations. It was just so, so horrible. And I left work. I went home and I I went to bed. I just was, I was crying like crazy. I just felt absolutely exhausted. And when I woke up this morning, I couldn't, uh, in the next morning, I couldn't move. I felt like I was encased in cement and tried to walk and was actually crawling. And it was like, I, I was brain dead. There was no other way to describe it. And I still couldn't make sense of what was happening. Sorry. Was uh, that you? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I my someone decided to text me. <laughs> okay. Um, shall I keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, and so um, that was on the Friday morning. On the Saturday was when I made the first suicide attempt. And in previous depressive episodes, I had never had that suicide ideation. And even then, the I mean, I counted up the pills on the counter. I poured the water and I was ready. And there was like a one-second voice and it said, run. And that's what I did. I ran. I threw on my flip-flops and grabbed my purse. It was like, I don't know, 8 o'clock at night on a Saturday, jumped in the car and just drove to get away and ended up in Walmart. Um, and on the Monday, I went to see the doctor because I realized there was a huge, huge problem. Um, and again, didn't quite get that it was depression because even though I was crying and hopeless and suicidal and life's not worth living and, you know, the, the pathetic and everything going no appetite didn't want it. Everything took so long. It was the physical symptoms, the pain, the physical pain was just overwhelming. And I, I, that's what I wasn't comprehending. And then when I went to see my doctor, she said, oh my goodness, you had like a mega nervous breakdown, which is like the old, old school thinking, but it was a major, it's an acute depression or a major depressive disorder, they call it now. And that was it. Worst episode of depression I ever had lasted for years. Um, suicide constantly, every single day. I wanted to kill myself. Um, sometimes I acted on it, and there, by the grace of God, something stopped me from following through, and I can't explain it. Um, 
And I likened it to being a rabbit hole. That was oh, it felt like I was at the bottom of some hole, and it was dark and earthy and damp and musty, and it was claustrophobic and suffocating. And I could only see a chink of light, like the tiniest, tiniest speck of light, way, way out of the hole. Um, and so then began antidepressants titrating for the perfect dose, going for therapy. Um, after I started on the uh, the new antidepressant, after a couple of weeks, it elevated my dopamine, which was depleted, and gave me enough understand, like give, not give me energy, but it just gave me a little bit more motivation to, you've got to get out of bed, you've got to do this. And because I was on my own, I had no one to minister to me, so I had no choice. I had to get up to get food and get my pills and go to the doctor and go for therapy. And I just started to think, okay, I've got to pass the days because you're just going hour by hour. In the very early stages, it's minute by minute. Then you go hour by hour. And then months down the road, then you go day by day. And I decided, okay, I've got to do something to stop me thinking because thinking is the worst thing you can do with depression because uh, it's all nasty, horrible things. And so I bought a coloring book and pencils and I colored and that was a good distraction. And then um, it was... Uh, I used to ride my bike all the time. So I thought, okay, just get a new bike and just go out for a little while. And the exercise definitely helped. And I'd be out there crying and considering whether or not to swerve into traffic. And my nose, there was snot everywhere, but I, I did it. And I started to develop my own kind of self-help plan. And everything was very much a structured routine. Um, I found... You know, make, okay, get up in the morning, make your bed. So then I would be less um, wanting to return to bed because I had all the throat pillars on. And then it'd be, okay, you've got to shower. You've got to clean your teeth, clean clothes, eat um, equal clothes, take your meds. And it was very structured. And if I deviated from it, I would get very, very anxious and panicky. But it kind of, it just gave you that momentum to get through that day because you'd look at the task. And as you cross things off, it kind of gave you that control that you were starting to take back your life. But it also, when you started to waver, you think, okay, that's fine. You're good luck. You're going to have lunch in half an hour. And then you can, you know, um, do some coloring. And then I started journal. And I journaled from the very beginning. And I've always been a person to journal to make sense out of everything. But then I started to think, okay, express gratitude. Um, and so I started to write down one good thing, even though you, you're in hell and you, you're not seeing a way out. It was like, okay, try and look at something today that was nice, that you appreciated, that was beautiful, that you give thanks for. And I started doing that. And I found that that was actually quite uplifting because I focused on simple things, which meant I, it was not materialistic or anything like that and I think and most people I've spoken to that have gone through a really major depression say they feel a shift as part of because of the horrors of what you go through and every single day you're fighting to stay alive um, as you start to heal your perspective in life 
changes. Um, and that's why I, I ended up doing the blog upon the recommendation of my psychologist, um, which was really to share what I was really going through with my friends because no one got it. I mean, they'd see me out and because I'm a Brit and you always have to, you know, try and look your best. And so they, well, you can't be <laughs> depressed. And so, you know, he said, start a blog, be very honest, invite them and see if you can, you know, see if they're going to start getting it. And almost immediately, you know, it was doctors and social workers and nurses and friends and psychologists. And I was getting feedback saying, oh my God, we never realized it was a whole body experience, right? We just think ahead, don't think about anything else. And after about three blogs, I was told by a few people, you really need to put this in a book. And so that kind of, I thought about it, but I still didn't follow through. And then um, the blog was started in the December. In the, the following June, I found um, a, um, a person that reviews books. She published a few of her own books, and I contacted her and said, hey, people are telling me this should be a book. Um, if I send the blog to you, can you give me an honest answer? And so she said, okay, fine. So she lived in uh, Montreal. I sent her everything, and three hours later, she said, I've got you an editor. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and that was it. And so began the book. And so uh, the book was released in 2018. It was a soft release via Amazon um, in the, the very last day of February. And then it was officially released in um, April, April 13th, 2018. That was the book release party. And then two weeks later, um, it came out on Audible. And that's kind of where I'm at. Um the plan was that I was going to obviously go and promote my book and talk about mental illness, um, but I was asked to go and talk to a middle school, the teenagers um, 11 to 15, and I went there to, um, to their English class, and it was actually to talk about um, how to use imagery. There's a lot of imagery in my book to try and describe what depression was like, so comparing my head pounding and the pain um, to like lava erupting from a volcano and things. And so the English teacher felt it would be good for those having difficulty writing to understand how you could use imagery to convey an emotion. Um, but I also took over um, in my book, and if you've seen on the website, all the illustrations in the book are there, and I'd had them enlarged for the book release party. So I took them over, we displayed them behind me on the, the easel, and immediately you could see all the kids nudging each other and whispering and talking. Um, I feel like that. Um, that's how my mum is. Oh, that looks like me. And there was no real talk about imagery and how to write essays. Um, they immediately they started to ask me, how did it feel? How did you know you were going to get better? How did you get out of the rabbit hole? And because, I mean, the questions were so intelligent and articulate. I was so impressed and very heartfelt. You could see many of them um, were very, very concerned and wanted to know the right thing to say and do to help someone. And so they invited me back two weeks later to their human library, which was an all-day event. 
um, where they had different people, all members of the public in different occupations sit at tables and in advance the students would sign up for 30-minute sessions. And so I arrived they, on the table. They had author and told me my role was to explain how to write and publish your first book. Yeah, right. No, that is what happened. <laughs> so, so the first group sat down and I started to give my spiel and they're all kind of looking at one another. And I stopped and I said, um, you, can you tell me why you signed up? And one of the girls you know what kids are like, right? They're all looking at one another. Are you going to say, mm-hmm. you're going to say? And I said, I said, anyone. I said, just, I said, I think I know what you're going to tell me, but can you tell me what, when the rotation came, why did you decide to sign up for, for my table? And she said, because we heard about you from English class. You're the lady that um, had depression and escaped the rabbit hole. And I said, okay. So what would you like to know? And they said, can you tell us how you did it? And that's how it began. Um, And so throughout the day, um, I ended up talking to 63 teenagers and every single one of them either had a mental illness or had a family member or had a mental illness and was being bullied. And they would come, uh, one girl came and confessed to me that she had just been discharged from hospital after a second suicide attempt and she was 15. And then I had a 13-year-old boy towards the end of the afternoon. Um, you could see he was very shy. He came up and he asked if he could speak to me privately. And I said, how can I help you? And he burst into tears and put his head in my shoulder and said, can you tell me when will I escape my rabbit hole? I, I've i been there for seven years. I don't think I'm ever getting out. And he absolutely broke my heart. Um, and so I went and sat and talked with him. And on the way home, I was absolutely exhausted. Um, but I just cried my heart out because I thought that was 63 teenagers came and confided in me about what they were going through and what could they do. And I did some research and I started to see the statistics about mental illness and children and teenagers and suicide. And that was it. I changed my platform there and then. And I thought, I said, you know what? Adults have a better chance. They have, um, they're better able to access things. They may have a better support network. They have social skills, education, learned experience, but what have these kids got? You know, where did they begin and what if they don't have supportive friends or family? And so that that became my platform and obviously there was a need. I So then I was invited to podcasts, newspaper, radio shows. I um, was invited down to um, ABC and NBC News down to the States and Um, In September of last year, I thought, okay, I really um, want to, you know, kind of make a difference and pay it forward. And so sold my home, donated most of my possessions to charity, put the rest in storage and said, okay, I'm coming to the States for the next six months. I'm paying for everything. You want me to come and talk about bullying, mental illness, suicide? Give me a shout. And here I am. (laughs) 
Well, that's awesome, though. It's awesome that you were willing to take that leap of faith and and be able to spread that message and help other people out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to. Um, it's every single day I hear another story or someone contacts me. And, I mean, you've only got to listen to the media or listen to the news and read in the papers. Another, you know, nine-year-old commits suicide. Um, another teenager uh, and all, and the thing is, is that if we don't start helping them, then we're setting them up for not a very good adult life because um, lots of them will drop out of school, um, commit suicide, turn to crime, addiction, gangs. Um, there's so many wrong paths they can choose. And so what I'm trying to do is kind of help educate what we can do to deal with the problem um, upstream before we get downstream and we're heading into the catastrophic waterfall because we're spending so much time and money putting out fires and I, you know, I want them to consider spending that money to start helping, educating, and supporting kids as soon as they go to school. I mean, we need to start teaching kids not only values and kindness and common, you know, common sense things, but mental health, we all have it. How do we take care of it? How do you cope if you don't win a race? If your friend ignores you today, you're stressed. How, you know, to, to develop basic coping strategies and also to recognize that, okay, so you lost a friend or a boyfriend, but it's not the end of the world and it's not something that's suicide. You know that there is a future. And I think um, the conference that I'm arranging right now, the event in Seattle, which is towards the end of March, is called the three E's and it's engage, educate, empower. And that's what I feel we need to do. If we engage our kids and educate them, then we'll empower them to take that information, um, not only help support others, but also how to support and help themselves, how to recognize bad days and implement strategies. And it'll empower them to move into adulthood um, educated, independent, more self-aware, um, and, and to recognize what other people with mental illness are going through and how they can best support them. And I, I'm hopeful that that in, in itself will then start reducing the stigma. Because, as you know, right, mental illness, uh, it's a movie star will come and talk about it and for about a month the stigma has reduced. But because we don't have that consistent story over and over and over again, um, we're just not getting to the point where we can truly address it and say, okay, you know what, let's deal with this. And so I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. Um, so time in the rabbit hole uh, makes you a very different person. And um, I saw it um, as horrible as it was, and I wouldn't want to go through it again. I, I see it as a gift. I really do. And... Um, it brought me to the person I am today and the mission that I'm doing. And I have um, nothing but gratitude for that. Tracy, and I guess two-part question here. What would you say to people who are struggling with mental health 
And then on the other side of that, people who maybe aren't struggling with mental health, but are trying to support someone who's struggling with mental health. How, what would you say to those two different people? So the person that's struggling with a mental illness or um, mental health stressors is, first of all, you're not alone. You are really not alone. Do not think that you're the only person in the world going through this. There are so many out there. And so I hope that they get comfort in that. But the second thing I say is be kind to yourself and reach out for help. Even if they put you on medication and you hate it, you may not need to stay on it for the rest of your life. So don't think of it like, oh, I'd want to be on those pills for the rest of my life. No, most people are off them within about a year. But you be Really be open to support. You need to see a doctor. You will need counseling to try and help you make sense out of this. And it re- and it does help. Be patient and accept one small step at a time. One, some days you'll have big steps. Other days you will have tiny little steps. Keep, I mean, keep going. And in my book I said, if I can do it, Anyone can, because I did it solo, completely, completely solo, screaming in the shower um, to try and be heard. And I made it out. And it's a lot of work, but believe that you will get better and just reach out for help. And then to those who know someone and looking after them, I would say, be kind. Do not judge. Um, Do not think because they shower and put on clothes that they're automatically healed and better. Um, and if they, if they can't get out of bed or they're taking 30 minutes to take out the garbage, don't call them lazy. It's not. They are, lit- they are stuck. It's what takes you a matter of seconds to do something that's normal. For us, um, when your brain is so severely broken and fractured, um, it takes long time for the dots to connect and to actually get that, okay, I better grab the bag and go out. It used to take me 30 minutes to brush my teeth. It takes me two minutes now. I mean, that it's, it's like you're in another zone. It's very difficult, but be kind and be patient and be, be supportive. You don't want to pander to them. Like you don't, if they're staying in bed every single day and they're not doing anything, that's not good either because they'll never get out. But you want to be encouraging. So if they get up and get dressed and you say, um, you know, so how, how does today, today feel? Does today feel better than yesterday? Or even, you know, decide on a score, one to ten. Like one could be bad, ten could be awesome. You know, how was your score today? Um, is there anything I can do? Um, would you like um, to sit down and have some coffee with me and we can talk? Be open to talking and listening. It may be that you just have to listen. Sometimes it may be that you just have to be there. But you've got to show that you that you care and that you believe what they're going through is horrible. You must believe them. If you make them think they're faking, you're going to set them back. So it's, it's show support and love and trust and, and be there. When that person says, I'm having a really bad day, you have to be there. Whether or not you talk to them, Skype with them, or show up at their door, 
you cannot say tomorrow will be better. It's, okay, you're having a bad day. Okay, uh, what can I do right now? Do you want to talk or shall I come right over? And that's when you need to take the lead. But I would say be patient, be kind, and be there. And Tracy, that the, sense. yeah, of course. Uh, and the last question I always ask as we wrap up the podcast, what is it that, whether it's something we've talked about today or maybe it's something we haven't talked about, what is it that you would want people to take away from from the last 40 minutes or so? I want them to understand that mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, we all have mental health, every single one of us. Um, if we didn't have a brain, we would not be alive. So, right? And mental health, you know, we all have good days, bad days. Um, we all have days where we feel very sad, um, very anxious, very angry. Th- those are normal emotions. With mental illness, um, everything has become a little tangled, whether or not it's because of a genetic predisposition or whether or not there are emo- environmental triggers. Um, there's only so much that your brain can handle. So if you have two or three extreme triggers all at once, even if you feel like you've coped with them, you can end up with an anxiety disorder or a depression or a paranoia or even an eating disorder. Um, It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is just you need to take time to take some medication, have some therapy so the brain has some time out to heal. And if, if one in four adults have a mental illness, and they're actually going to change that to one in three, and one in five children have a mental illness, you've only got to look around a restaurant or your workplace or go to the shopping mall to understand how common it is. If you look and say one in three or one in four, how many people is that? Um, and so, yes, um, and when or if you end up with a mental illness, please do not be ashamed or embarrassed to seek help. Go and talk to your doctor, counselor, and you're not alone. You are absolutely not alone. There are so many of us out there, and every one of us right now are on all different forms of social media sharing our stories, the good, bad, and the ugly, in a hope that others will identify and understand it can happen to anybody. Like mental illness doesn't have a favorite. You can be rich, famous, homeless, poor, a child, an o- a mature adult, a young professional, race, culture, religion. It, it doesn't matter. It's open season. And that's what people need to understand. It can happen to you. And it could. it happens unexpectedly, as I said, there's always usually environmental triggers if there's not that genetic component. But um, be kind. Do not make assumptions and judge other people just because they're the life and soul of the party. Just like Robin Williams was, do not believe for one moment that they then don't go home and sob themselves to sleep. So, um, yes, you're not alone. Um, it is nothing, absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, and it you will get better with time. Well, and Tracy, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast this week and talking. One tradition that I've started with the podcast is 
allowing my guest to sign off. You know, it kind of makes it your own. Um, so would you like to do the sign off? Um, so here in cold but sunny Kelowna, British <laughs> Columbia, is Tracy Maxfield, author of Escape from the Rabbit Hole at www.tracymaxfield.com. Signing off. Stay safe, everybody. Stay warm and be kind. Mm-hmm.